Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hello, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Victor Jacarino with us. As an educator for almost 50 years, Victor always identifies himself as a teacher first. As a chair of English, he was fortunate enough to find himself during his last 20 years in a district that encouraged him to define his own position. While in the Herrick School District on Long Island, New York, He led his department to develop curriculum that raised standards for all before the Common Core existed. While he and his departments eliminated their honors program, his AP scores went up. When he instituted an initiative to differentiate instruction for all students, his state test scores went up. And when he insisted that teaching to the test was hurting students, scores went up. A leader in both pedagogy and academics, he was elected president of the New York State English Council, where he and his team held the biggest conference in the history of the organization, bringing over a thousand teachers to Albany to learn together. As chair of the National Council of Teachers of English Convention at the Javits Center in New York City, he helped NCTE reach over 8,000 teachers nationwide. And as a board member of the Conference on English Leadership, he presented workshop after workshop on how to improve literacy in the classroom. Victor believes that teachers must work together to explore and improve their craft. And he has been working with pre-service teachers for over 15 years at Hofstra University, training them to become student-centered instructors. While working at Herrick's and after retirement, Victor has been a consultant to the New York State Education Department and to over 50 school districts. He works with teachers in all subject areas, promoting critical thinking skills and collaboration among teachers and students. He believes that the work he is doing now is more important than any he has done. Each week for the past five years, he works with administrators and teachers to improve instruction through practical, hands-on workshops and coaching. And he always reminds us that what we do is about kids, improving their motivation, their academic engagement, and their lives. So welcome, Victor Jacarino. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Great, great. We are so happy to have you on our podcast. So as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And today we're going to do that by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I'm ready to pour. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So my first question is, what inspired you to choose educational leadership as a career path? I didn't pursue educational leadership as a career path. What I did pursue was education. And um, the educational leadership sort of came to me. I got a lot of positive feedback in those early years as a teacher. And I worked with kids as a drama coach for a long time, which was my one. Yeah, it it was a passion of mine. And at one point, 
I started to just make some shifts myself. I became a go-to person for a number of people in my department. I was in East Meadow at that time. And an administrator suggested that I go I get my administrative license. So I did. Mm-hmm. And I did it with a friend. Uh, we decided to just take courses together, not really, not with a set goals in mind. But what came of it was I started to realize that I could have more uh, positive impact for kids if I were working with teachers who worked with kids and exponentially I could work. And I, I always wanted to be in touch with kids and with teachers. I never wanted to get past that level. So the journey started with me just pursuing a, a chairmanship um, in English as, as a chair of English. And I, I applied for a job in Smithtown and I took that job. And that started the journey for me and it, it changed um, it changed how I taught, and it changed how I um, operated uh, within within the um, the boundaries of education. Because yeah, your perspective was my perspective different. was, I, and I always used to say to myself, "Keep a sign up in your office, across the top." And I used to imagine that once I actually put it up, but it mm-hmm. didn't stay for very long. Um, remember, you always had five classes. That's a nice quote. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> there goes your quote. There's my quote. Uh, you know, I always wanted to remember that I had five classes and the people I was working with have five classes and I only have two. And, it, you know, it makes a difference when you have that, when you remember that. So how would you describe your leadership style? My leadership style. I like to think that I'm collaborative and I have to force myself to be a good listener. That's going to come up a lot today, by the way, I think, as, as I was looking at your questions. Um, I have to make sure that I'm listening to people and taking it in and then trying to bring their thoughts together. So collaboration is extraordinarily important to me, and that's very time-consuming, I I, I found. I didn't know how time-consuming that would be. But making sure that everybody has an input and everybody has a piece of the pie as well, you know, that that it goes in both directions, from kids as well. So I would say that collaborative, it's very important to me to build consensus, sometimes with a goal in mind as to what that consensus should be. Um, but I want, I, I like to have consensus, not majority, but consensus, so that we're working together. I like getting my hands dirty. I think one of the things that I did that made me successful on my, particularly, I'm, well, on both, both of my uh, chairmanships, uh, the one in Harrick's and the one in Smithtown, is I would team teach with teachers. And I would go into the classroom not to observe them, but to actually we develop lessons that the teacher had never worked on before and that I had never worked on before. And how did they receive that? They loved it. They loved it because... From the beginning? Yeah, because it's all voluntary. It starts off to be voluntary. So, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, what I did that, I did that also with new teachers. And that was a lot of fun mm-hmm. because they came with an energy... Um, and I remember one young man, we did a uh, three lessons in a row on the Odyssey. And he had, he had, it was exhausting for both of us. And, but we were also trying to do some new techniques. Uh, we were trying to t- change the pedagogy. Although the material was older and well-worn in a sense, um, we were trying to have the kids collaborate. We were trying to come up with ideas. And so we did that together, and we actually team-taught in the classroom doing it. It was a wonderful experience for, bo- for both of us. Sounds like fun. It was a lot of fun, and the kids enjoyed it too. And it also, kids got to know me in the school. That was at, at Herrick's in particular. The other thing that helped me with is when I, had a, uh, when I came to another department, 
they were a little bit reluctant. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an inside person that wanted the job. She was wonderful, mm -hmm. by the way. But they chose, they chose me from mm -hmm. the outside. Nobody knew me. And I, I said I would uh, volunteer to team teach with anyone who wanted me to. And a person in the department chose for me to uh, work in an advanced placement class, which I thought was a rather interesting choice mm -hmm. uh, to make because that would, uh, it right. would challenge me yeah. and it would show what I, what I might be able to do. And we did it. We did uh, we did some uh, some work with the advanced placement class, uh, with two or three days. And that was interesting because you came from the outside. Yes. You, I imagine that you gained trust rather quickly by doing that. That helped a great deal because then other people invited me in okay. uh, to their classroom. Now you mentioned something. You said you forced yourself to be a listener. I have can to. We, I can we talk a little bit about? Sure. That? I, because as you can see, before you even finished the question, I started to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a practice that you you continuously have. You I have to. Okay. I wasn't taught it as a kid. As a matter of fact, I can talk about this a lot. The administrator that I worked for that taught me about listening by observing him was Al Mastrangelo, and he was the first principal who hired me as an administrator. And he would sit at the table, his principal, and he would have his cabinet around him. Um, he was not—he was not an academic in his background. He came—he came from uh, vocational okay. work, and but he was a great listener, and he knew how to pick people to work with him. And he would sit around the table, and he would put an idea out, or a thought that he had, or a problem that was there or something the superintendent told him to work on and he would listen to everybody in the room and he didn't say a word and then he would go with his pen he would tap it on the table maybe we go 15 minutes 20 five whatever it is that he needed and he would say this is what I heard and he would sum up the entire conversation of 12 people and he would get to the kernel of it and he said, and I think this is what we should do. And he was always right. He was always right on the money. It was amazing. Uh, the other person who taught me about listening well was a teacher in one of my departments. His name was Rich Corcoran. And he said to me, we, we would make decisions as a department. And he would say to me, you didn't hear everybody. I said, well, I opened it up to everybody. Everybody was able to speak. He said, but you didn't hear everybody. I said, all right, Rich, what do you mean? He said, not everybody spoke. I said, but that's a choice. He said, maybe it shouldn't be a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, because not everybody wants to speak. People are going to feel um, pressured from, by others. So I changed my technique. Uh, and, I, and I used this until the day I left uh, uh, that department and then the second department. When we had an issue that had to be discussed, when we were finished, when people spoke, I said, all right, now we're gonna, we're gonna go around the room and everyone has to tell me at least one thought that they're taking away before we come to a decision as to what we do. Rich taught me to do that. So I had to practice that, make sure that I was listening to everybody. And I had to learn to say, when people came into my office with an issue, um, I'll get back to you on that. That was a very important phrase for me to learn. I had one teacher said to me once. I, it was early in my, uh, my work, my tenure in my second, second uh, school that I worked in as a chair. She said to me, what do you have to think about? This is an easy one. I said, I will promise that I will get back to you within 24 hours, but I need to think, because I made it a mantra, because I didn't want to make instant decisions. I it, wanted to listen. I tend to be one who makes decisions like very right. quickly. And Blink. it's, yeah, and it's gotten me in trouble sometimes. Right. So I'm, I'm assuming that that's yes. possibly oh, why I'll get trouble. back to yeah. you. That's, yes. that's really good. Yeah. 
Victor, tell me which quote or quotes <laughs> about leadership speaks to you and so, why. So, because you sent me this list, I went looking this morning, right. and I came up with two. Okay. Uh, because I couldn't, I couldn't get any off the top of my head. I thought about things that people said that inspired me, but we wanted a quote. So I went back to 53 B.C., mm -hmm. somewhere between 53 B.C. and 483 B.C., Buddha. Uh, believe nothing, no matter where you read it or who said it, no matter if, you, if I have said it, unless it agrees with your own reason and your own common sense. Mm. That, that speaks to me. And this one by W.C. Fields. Remember, a dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a live one to swim upstream. Wow. So. <laughs> Tell me why that speaks to you. That speaks to me because um, it's easy to go with the crowd. It's easy to go with the, um, with the community, which, mm -hmm. is, you know, which is a good thing most, most of the time. But there are times when you've done the research and you have the vision and you believe in your heart of hearts that this is where we need to go. And that can be an, an upstream uh, swim. I would say probably pretty early in my career, I was against tracking. And that's way before it became fashionable. And it was intuitive. And at that time, I remember always struggling with guidance. This is when I was in the classroom with moving kids out of the lower tracks into upper tracks, and I was told that I couldn't for a number of reasons. But when I became an administrator, it was a goal I had set for myself. Before the Common Core, um, maybe 10 years before, I came to a decision along with the superintendent, Jack Beerworth, great guy, and Jay Maduna was the principal. Jack was the superintendent, Jane was the, um, the, uh, the principal of the building. I wanted to eliminate honors, which was totally against the grain of the community and what imagine, many teachers believed. Mm -hmm. And so I did all of the research on it, and I spent two years gathering the research. I could find nothing that supported honors classes. I couldn't find a single piece of research, and I presented that to the department first, and we struggled with it. So okay, so you presented that first to the department? I presented it to the superintendent and the principal first. Because before going down a road, mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that I was going to get support from above. And how was that? When you it was great. Okay. Well, actually, he wanted me to create a P for everyone, uh, advanced placement. Mm -hmm. And I said, here's what I'll do. I will try to do that if I can. I'm not sure I know how to do that. This is going to be a three- or four-year process. And I wrote up a plan. Actually, I wrote it up with the department. I, and I presented it to him because it came from me and, and a group of teachers. We wrote it together. I said... I will try to do this. I believe in it, but I don't know how to do it. And if I believe within a year before we're actually going to execute that I can't do it yet, you're going to have to let me go without it. Mm -hmm. But I've got to, I have to do, I have to remove honors from 7 through 10. That's my, my major goal because I think it's killing us. I think it's killing my honors kids, and I think it's killing our lower-level kids. So let's let's kind of back up a yeah. little, um, because I imagine too that educators it, that are currently listening to this and they have honors classes or parents who have their kids in honors mm -hmm. classes are wondering why are you thinking this? Actually, I wasn't thinking it. I was reading the research. And you were reading the research is very very clear. Honors does not help what we call the better, the stronger kids. That's a label that we put on them. It doesn't help them at all. It doesn't hurt them. It doesn't help them. But it hurts the lower level kids and the average kids. 
because for a number of reasons. They're not getting challenging. They're getting less challenging material because everybody teaches to the middle. And they are getting weaker pedagogy because we seem to think that we have to deliver content to those kids more explicitly than we do to the others. So what I started asking teachers to do uh, before we actually did this, when they try something new and they say, I'm going to try that in my honors class, I said, don't, don't, don't try it in your honors class. Please try it in what we call our region's assisted class. Try it with those kids. They need it more. And I found that, that that actually worked. So the research was clear and the execution was clear. As far as parents were concerned, they were very nervous, but they, they had a lot of trust in me. I had a great relationship with the community. So what I did was I invited myself to lunch. I asked parents in the community to invite me and one teacher to come to lunch. And they bring a group of parents together, particularly the parents of the honors kids because those are the ones that were against it the most. Mm -hmm. And the teacher that I brought with me was very nurturing. And I remember she put her hand on a parent's arm, and she said, I promise you we will not hurt your kids. And that's what we had to assure the parents of. In terms of the educators, I can't tell you how clear the research is. Right. It is so clear. Right. Uh, we didn't eliminate advanced placement. Mm -hmm. We eliminated honors. We rewrote our six through 10 curriculum. I didn't know how to write curriculum this way at that point. I learned later better. But we did it the best we could and we set standards based on the advanced placement classes. And we taught to those standards starting in sixth grade. What happened was, this was the great part of this, in the 11th grade when we had our first AP course, we moved from under 100 kids to 215 in the fourth year. Wow. Or that was the year that we actually made the shift, the big shift. My fives went from under 15 to 32. I used to believe that fives were, I used to say this, I'm embarrassed to tell you, fives walk into my room. I can change a three to a four, but I don't know how to do a four to a five. I was wrong mm -hmm. because we, we changed the fours to fives. Mm -hmm. And we did it because we had been preparing them all along. That was one initiative. We had two initiatives going simultaneously. We called Raising Standards for All. This is pre-Common Core. Mm -hmm. Just, I, I want to keep that. I want to really emphasize that. This is before the Common Core. We called it Raising Standards for All. We uh, had an initiative simultaneously on differentiated instruction. So we were doing both simultaneously. So we were changing the pedagogy in our classrooms to differentiate. We, one of the, I remember one of the teachers um, instituted stations so that we were using stations and she was sitting at a station that was the station to meet with the teacher. It was awesome. Mm. It, was really, it was really great to it watch. It sounds amazing. Yeah. sounds great. Now tell me, um, Victor, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? So that was actually easy for me, that question. Uh, one who listens. <laughs> That's who inspires me. Uh, I just told you about uh, Al Mastrangelo, uh, who was a great listener. My second one was Jane Meduno, who was principal I've worked with. When she had her, her leadership team, she made sure that everyone got to speak. Um, great listener. Um, and also showed a personal interest in the people that worked for her. That She also inspired me um, in that way. And she inspired me to, I wouldn't say, I, I like to think of myself as kind, but she was very kind. And that was always very important to me, to uh, emulate kindness with everyone uh, that she worked with. So I would say one who listens, one who has goals, not just sets goals, but has goals, and uh, one who is kind. 
to everyone and trust. Jane built a great deal of trust. Her first day in the building, I'll never forget this. I was on her hiring committee because I was president of our administrators unit at the time. I just loved her from the minute she walked into the into the room for the interview. And I, and I led the interviews with the administrative team for her. What she did that day, that first day, she had her elbow on the counter in the main office, and I had my elbow, we were chatting, and her secretary was there, and we were just sort of talking. And she looked down and she said to Gail, her secretary, what's this? And Gail said, oh, that's the teacher's sign-in sheet. And she said, Victor, excuse me for a minute. She went into her office, I sat down with Gail in Gail's office, her secretary. We were talking, waiting, and you could see the little red light was on the phone. And so she was making a phone call, and she came out of the office about five minutes later, and she said, get, get rid of it. She just got rid of the sign, and she, she changed the culture in three minutes in that building. It was amazing. Wow. And that's the way she conducted herself. You know, I, I do want to ask this. I know this isn't an <laughs> go ahead. part of go, go, I'm please. going off the grid. Here. I'm having a good time. <laughs> so it seems like you've had great coaches. I've had some mentors. great coaches. I have. Okay. Is yeah. that important for a leader? Absolutely. Tell me why. In, but in both directions. Mm-hmm. Because you want to look at people that you want to, you know, that accomplish what you want to accomplish. I'm working with a principal now who's a little bit different from the from the from these two leaders, but he's in a different environment. You know, and he sets he sets very specific goals. I'm working as a consultant. So that's what he needs to do in his school. Um, so he may be a little bit more emphatic about the goals that he's setting. Uh, but then he brings everybody in. But he, he does bring everyone in. So I think for me, uh, Jane is a, was a great mentor. Al was awesome as a, as a leader uh, and a mentor for me. I'd like to encourage people who are working for and with me to learn and to move forward. So I would like to think of myself as a mentor as well, both for new teachers, for young teachers, and for future uh, administrators. So there is a young man who is a new chair of English uh, on Long Island who calls me once in a while. That's incredibly important. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's very and, important. And, and to me, it doesn't matter where you are in leadership, you can always grow. Mm. <laughs> so even top-level leadership, you know, you need mentors, you need coaches. Absolutely. Even at that level. Okay, so you know all about having good teams and building good teams. Mm. Tell us a little bit about what it means to have a good team and how you would build one. Yes, um, I had what I consider to be, and some people tell me it's true, the two best English departments in the state of New York. They were awesome, very strong teachers and very strong-willed teachers as well. And I actually think that that was an important part of building the team. First of all, the first thing is I want compassionate people working working for me. To me, that was very important. One of the uh, questions I always asked at an interview was, uh, tell me what you did to help a kid. And it threw some people. I always found that interesting. Some people couldn't answer that. Another thing that I did is I had kids on my interview committee. I sat the kids away from me because I wanted to see if the, um, if the candidate would speak to the kid when the kid asked the question or speak to me. I wanted the kid, I wanted to make sure that the kid was addressed mm-hmm. personally when the kid asked the question. That was important to me. So I wanted to see that, that relationship. I also tried very hard, and I, I always had two teachers minimum, sometimes three, on our committee. And we talk about the strengths of the department and what we needed 
for more strengths. And we try to identify our own gaps and try to fill those gaps so that we could uh, learn from each other. As we're learning now uh, in many countries in the world, some teachers are better educated than they are in this country. So it was always important to us that our teachers in my department knew their content as well. That was important to me. Equally as important as the others, but, but important. And we wanted different viewpoints. I had a principal who said to me, but do you take too long for the interview process? So I said to him, really, who do you think is, has the best department in your building? <laughs> he said, well, you do. I said, then leave me alone. <laughs> you, you interview really well. I take a long time for the interview. Some people don't consider that well, but I do. So in the last meeting with a candidate, I would say to, say to the candidate, there's two things I want you to know about this department. I said, you will have the opportunity here to write your own curriculum. The other thing I want you to know is, you will be expected here to write You're a okay. curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I wanted to see what a reaction would be. The other thing I also did during the interview is I gave feedback. Sometimes I would allow them to do the uh, demo lesson a second time after the feedback. This is so important. You spoke about um, some of the teachers on your team being strong-willed. <laughs> some people are intimidated yeah. by that. And I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. Tell me how that occurred to you when you have a teacher who's strong-willed. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change the phrase. If okay. Have, have strong feelings or passion about what we need to do because that would give us different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. To me, that's very important that we have those different viewpoints, particularly if they are the opposite of mine because I'm strong-willed, and I'm, I, I tend to be pretty passionate about what I believe in. We were about 20 in the high school, and we were eight in the middle school, plus the sixth grade teachers. And what, what we did was, when we were making major changes, this was new for them, I used to have meetings together mm -hmm. um, so that we could get everyone's viewpoint. So to me, it's important for people to give examples from their classroom. We were no longer allowed to say, when I tell students, or I tell students that, we have to say, when I teach students by, this works, or this mm -hmm. doesn't work, so that we actually get the, you know, the, the specifics. Because it's important. We want the teachers to hear each other and to hear each other's strengths. And so what we did in my department is we exchanged books. I had poets. I had songwriters. I had athletes. I had some very nurturing uh, people. Um, we had different political views. We had different loves of, of literature and different ways of teaching writing. And what was most important to me, actually, was assessment. I was strong-willed about this. Mm -hmm. We're going to do performance assessments, and we're going to do project-based learning. We're going to see what kids can do when they leave us. So that we instituted in the high school, this was big, we instituted a final exam that was 50% portfolio. Portfolios were fashionable. Mm -hmm. And 50% on demand, so that both were happening simultaneously. And that came from the, the teachers worked on that together. I, I think I may have changed the subject right now. But. No, it speaks to the strong-willed and someone who, who really paves the way. And one of the things, too, that just was really, I guess to me, wonderful, is that you invite creativity in asking the teachers to create their own curriculum and the poets that you talked about. Yeah. I mean, you just invite creativity. Oftentimes, um, there are school systems not meaning to, but we kind of right. squelch all that creativity yeah, you and can't it goes do that. out the window. And we had parameters, yeah. and we set the parameters together. Today I define curriculum differently than I did mm -hmm. 10 years ago and 15 years ago because I think it's all in the assessment now and how we, and how we build the assessment and backward design. Grant Wiggins, 
That's what I think that's really important. So the way we identified curriculum then, when I was talking to those people, was probably about books. Mm-hmm. To me now, it's more about assessment and, and the pedagogy. Now, you mentioned backward design. Can you just quickly tell us what? Sure. Um, right now, I've just developed a new workshop. Now we start with standards, whatever they may be. Right. And we determine what the vehicle is to get to those standards, but develop no lessons and then develop the assessment. And the assessment has to be a performance assessment. It cannot be multiple choice questions, and it cannot be a series of 15 questions. It has to be something the kids could do. It could be an essay. It could be writing an argument. It could be something longer than that. It could be a seminar, preparation for a seminar and reflection on a seminar. It could be a fishbowl activity, anything of that nature. It could be pamphlets. Where the kids are writing or writing letters to, uh, where they're actually going to take an action, but it has to be performance. Right. The kids have to do something. It could be as a team, it could be individual, but everybody's got to bring something to the team. So that's first. So we write that first. That takes a long time. And then you write your formative assessments to go from day one to that performance assessment, and then you write your lessons. Mm-hmm. So that to me, that's what backward design means. And it means that the teacher. And the kid has a focus during the entire lesson. This is where we're going. And how do we get there? And how do we get there? And it's together. It's very similar to coaching, good coaching. Oh, yeah, it is. of course it is. You have a goal in mind. Of course. There's an activity. It's called the history of your future, mm-hmm. where you take the person to 10 years from now. Right, and work backwards. And then you have the conversation. Well, tell me, how did you get there? Our teachers already know this. Phys ed teachers know it. Mm-hmm. Music teachers know it, right? They know where they have to get to. Yeah. So tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life. Okay, so I've thought about this, and mm-hmm. I've had some tough ones. So I'm going um, to say that from an educational point of view, the honors program, mm-hmm. that was a challenge. That was a five-year five-year process. Right now, I just spoke to the new chair, and they're, they're still there, and they're still moving forward. So that, that affected my perspective on how to help kids move forward. Other challenges, I, would, I think that in my early career, uh, being a, a drama teacher was uh, a great challenge for me, and it shaped the process for me. You know, we're just talking about knowing what the end goal is, so mm-hmm. it shaped that, and I'm still, I still have contact with a lot of those kids from, uh, from the 70s. So tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped your life and the life of those around you. Okay, so I think one of my early, it's it's an early one, actually. I directed a production of Godspell. Mm. I don't know if you know uh, know it. Yes, I do. And (laughs) we ended up going around the island with it. We were invited to many schools on the island. And I think I'll never forget it. The day of the of our first, of our opening night, I don't know if you know the, the last scene where Christ is being crucified on the fence. Mm-hmm. The whole cast went to tears. Actually, I'm getting actually a little choked up thinking about it. Uh, they just started crying on the stage and singing. And um, it just showed me the um, the community and the glue that held these kids together and the emotions that they were feeling through the music and the words and the language and the work they had done together. And then we went on, on, onto the island. Um, and I think a second uh, success that I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about is what I'm doing right now. I didn't know I was going to be a consultant. Who knew? <laughs> there were people who knew, actually. <laughs> I didn't know it. Um, my last two years at Herrick's, my superintendent was lending me out to other districts. 
uh, to, uh, to do some consulting work. Somebody from one of the BOCES came and invited me to be on their uh, network team institute to go to Albany f to represent them and to do a few workshops for them. And what it led to for me is now, uh, five years later, after this retirement, that was, it's not a retirement, I failed retirement. I failed <laughs> retirement. Worked harder than I ever Horribly. did in my life. Horribly. <laughs> Horribly. I'm working with phys ed teachers. I'm working with art teachers. I'm working a lot with social studies teachers. So it's moved into from literacy to critical thinking skills for all kids and raising the stakes for all kids and helping them to succeed in a very challenging world. Uh, and right now, I'm working with Mike Keeney. You know Mike? He's yes, got one of your, your yep. podcasts with That's Mike. Right. He and I are working together in the Cleary School for the Deaf. Who knew? that I'd be working with teachers of the deaf, mm -hmm. and they want me back. Mm -hmm. And I've been working there 11 times, working with teachers on pedagogy. and uh, So it's awesome. It's a great thing. You know, I want to tell you that one of the um, greatest values that a leader, a good leader has, or a great leader has, is that they value others. And I can see that in you. I can see why you've come from here and then as a teacher and yeah. I can see as you tell your story how you brought value to others but you also valued those around you. I think I would like to think that that's true. Yeah. I just met you recently <laughs> <laughs> and you're adding so much value to us and so oh, I want to thank you for that. So what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about the climate or the culture in the school? I would say first of all change the culture. It can be done. It has to be done methodically and you have to enlist the help of others. Jane taught me that. You do that by building trust and trusting. That's hard. The trusting part is probably the hardest part. Trusting that you don't know everything and that other people may know more than you do and allowing them to move forward. So I think if it's a culture that's toxic, then set the goal to change the culture. Because, and if you believe that you can't change the culture, then you can't change it. It's like the people say to me, my kids can't do it. Right. Then you're right. Mm -hmm. Once you say you can't, you can't. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that, then I think you should get out of leadership. Mm -hmm. I think that if you, if you don't believe that you can help change that culture and make it a healthier culture uh, that's supportive of people and uh, their individuality, I think that you shouldn't, you shouldn't be in that position. I, think that you, that's what I, I really believe in that. It sounds harsh, but I believe it. So let me ask you another question. I know that this term, lifelong learner, we see it on a lot of resumes and people talk yep. about that. Um, what does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? When I look back, one of the things I'm proudest of is five years into education, my classroom looked nothing like the first day. Ten years in, it looked nothing like the five, first five years, the fifth year, and et cetera. My class at Hofstra, now that I'm, I'm adjuncting at Hofstra, it looks nothing like it did four years ago. So to me, that's, that's a lifelong learner, that you're, uh, you're always adding to your bag of tricks, so to speak, to the pedagogy that you use. You're always exploring new ways of moving forward. You know, uh, in 12-step programs, they say that you're either going towards a drink or away from the drink. You're never standing still. So I think it's the same thing in education. And I'm going to throw in an answer to another question that you had asked me, but that we haven't discussed. Mm -hmm. The best book that I've read on education in the last five years, Amanda, Amanda Ripley, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. That book taught me a lot. 
Um, and I only read it recently, maybe about three years ago. So I, um, it's, I don't know if you know the book, but it's, it's a research-based book on what's going on in three other countries in the world, but it's told as a narrative. So it's her journey through the research. It's not her just throwing the research at you. She's a, um, she sh by the way, she should give me royalties because I talk about her book all the time in my workshops. She, <laughs> she shows me. Um, but it's her discovery of how the world has changed and we haven't really made those moves quite quite yet in this country. Um, very, very inspiring. So the reason I'm sharing that with you is I'm 50 years into this profession, and I'm reading a book that's that's changing the way I look at education now. You know, in my in, I'm going to be going into my 50th year in another year. And your eyes are still bright. <laughs> <laughs> They're I love dancing. It. Oh, no, I love it. That's wonderful. It's, I've been very, very fortunate. I've had the best career as an educator. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so the smartest kids in the world and, and how, how they, they got, got that, that way. way. It's Amanda, Amanda Ripley. She's, she was a journalist for the, um, the Atlantic. So, Victor, can you tell us about any project that has influenced you as an educator? Um, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. I learned early on the importance of my professional organizations. And the first one that I joined was the Long Island Language Arts Council. Uh, it was just of, of teachers of English because the chair of English when I was a teacher in East Meadow was part of that organization. He brought me to a meeting and I heard my first meeting was Lucy Calkins. That's where I was first introduced to her. And I became part of working on their conference and just as a, a grunt work. You know, just I'll do anything you want me to do and I'll help out. That led me to the New York State English Council uh, where Rosalie Rafter, who was the president, asked me to be the conference chair. Uh, so I was on the board of the Long Island Language Arts Council, and then I was on the board simultaneously of the New York State English Council. And as conference chair, that was my first exposure to putting a conference together for a few hundred teachers at that time, um, and it was awesome. And when we finished with the conference, uh, Rosalie and I got in the car because we drove, drove back to Long Island, and I said to her, it's too bad we only did that once. Now we know how to do it. <laughs> you know, and it was great right. because teachers were having such a good time learning about how to teach English. And this is back in 1990-something or other. And then I was, uh, I was elected president of the Long Island Language Arts Council at that time. So as president of that organization, I was working with teachers on Long Island. What was neat about it was I had this network of administrators. Mm -hmm. I was a new administrator that I could call any problem, hiring problem, curriculum problem, and they would call me back and they'd say you could call so-and-so to get that information. And we started writing things before listservs. So we would send notes to each other or leave messages. Um, and then I got involved with the National Council of Teachers of English on the Conference in English Leadership there, and I was asked to be the chair of the convention in New York City. So the New York State English Council, uh, we got that up to, we had the largest conference uh, up until that time up in Albany of over a thousand teachers coming together at the Desmond Hotel. Mm -hmm. um, and I had some great speakers. I was able to secure Terrence McNally uh, uh, and I was able to, um, a, a few other authors and pedagogues and Marzano came to speak for us. Uh, it was great. And then for the NCTE, 8,000 teachers at the Javits Center. So what was so great about that was I was adjuncting at Hofstra at that time. I got my class to come in and work at that conference and get to go to all these workshops. Wow, all this synergy with all, all everything that you were doing. It was awesome. Oh, um, but it was really, it was, it was really, it was a lot of fun. 
and I was just learning from people from all over the state of New York because we it was uh, English Council that sponsored the national convention, mm -hmm. so it was all my friends from all over the state. We came together to work together to put that uh, convention together, the Javits Center and at the Marriott uh, Marquis. So that was oh, you so moved I up from three hundred teachers, was it? At the beginning? Yeah, <laughs> to eight thousand. But wow. so yes, or what advice I would give to new administrators or to new teachers: get involved in your professional organizations. You'll be with people who are positive, who want to be a part of the organization, who want to learn, and who want to teach others more. And they so want to make a difference. And they want to make a difference. That they yeah, need to. and they do it. They do it because they love it. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm still driving to Albany. For the um, from then I, I'm still on the board of NYSEC. I still drive to Albany five times a year for that. So it's really great. So thank you for asking okay, me that question. Great. Yeah. Okay, so we're closing in on the last three questions. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities <laughs> you have? I mean, this I is, know yeah. I know you've retired, <laughs> but I think you're working harder now than ever. I'm not. Huh? I'm, I don't have a good answer for this question <laughs> because I'm not good at it. Okay. Um, my mind is always going. Right. Everyone tells me I should slow down, but I look for, in answer to your question, what do I do? I look for more work. I try to meditate. I'm not always successful. I try to breathe. That's uh, important. I mean, very. Uh -huh. And I'm not good at it. <laughs> so I try to breathe on a daily basis. I actually take a breath right. and slow down. In my workshops, I'm much better at keeping quiet. I find that frustrating for me because I want to tell people what to do. Uh, but they're learning. They're learning better because I'm, I'm using the. In my workshops, I actually use the pedagogy they advocate for kids. That's the biggest shift for me in education. I learn that the work has to be done in my consulting, outside of the workshop, in the classroom, outside of the classroom, in my work at Hofstra, outside of the classroom. The work is done before you step foot into the, the classroom. Front end. Front That's end. where it is. Mm -hmm. It's not when you're in the classroom because if, you, if you're sweating and working harder than the students or I'm working harder than the teachers that I'm working with, that's not good. They have to be working harder than I am when I'm there. It's all in the preparation. So that's one of the things. I spend a lot of time preparing for the work that I do. And then I just put together, before, before you got here, I was working on something I'm doing next week at the Cleary School, and I'm working with their assistants. And I was redoing the workshop that I had put together for them two weeks ago. And I'm reworking it again. That doesn't now, sound do you rework it because you've you've found out some needs? I find out in the workshops where sometimes that I can do better. Okay. That's one one reason that I do it. Sometimes I learn, you know, something new. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just occurs to me, you know, I left this out and I want to put it in. I had the opportunity just recently. Uh, one of the BOCES sent me up to Albany to work with three consultants. Uh, Chris Tavani, I just worked with Chris Tavani, and just before her with Tim Shanahan. I don't know if you know either, either of those mm -hmm. two people. They're great. Tim Shanahan has an awesome uh, blog for teachers. Shanahan on literacy, I think. So the reason I'm sharing that with you is I'm, was, I just did a workshop at, at BOCES on reading fitness mm -hmm. and how to work with kids who are struggling readers with complex text, because that's the name of the game right now, in all subject areas. I want to keep emphasizing that because it has to happen in all subject areas. And I learned from Shanahan such wonderful things that I just had to put them into the, the work that I was doing. So I just added, you know, added that. So it's a combination of reasons why I that's do that. That's great. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, many educational leaders put in long hours, right? What advice would you give them about maintaining <laughs> balance I don't know if I'm the one to do that <laughs> slow down slow down breathe breathe listen better uh -huh. uh, 
and say I'll get back to you on that. I'll get back to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing that one down. Yeah, I'll I, get back to you. I, you know, I, I get back to you. But I think the advice is, is to be true to yourself. You know, stay stay on, on on course. But but also at the same time, explore the criticisms. You know, explore that. You know, you might not be right all of the time. Most of the time, but not yeah. you know, but you know, not all of the time. Now, the, are there any? Um, is there any particular technology or app that you use that you like that you want to share with other people? It's not my strength, okay. but I, I use uh, I use Google Docs a lot. Yeah. Uh, I go to Achieve the Core a lot. I look there mm-hmm. uh, okay. for material. Now um, we've come to our last question. Oh my God! <laughs> so, Victor, if you can go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Um, slow down. <laughs> Listen better, and say sooner in your career. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> okay, well that's amazing advice, Victor. I want to thank you so much for adding value not just to me, but to our listeners. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do this because it, w- it helps me clarify, uh, you know, what I'm doing, my own thinking. It was fun. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to our website at masterleadership.org to get show notes for this episode and to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of our exceptional educational leadership coaches that are featured on this podcast. Until next time. Bye.